You can make your way to Psalm 119. And for David, I would remind him that in Psalm 119, I'm only going to preach eight verses. But eight times five is 40. All right. All right. We have this week where we're going to address our seniors and our church as a whole. This is not just for our seniors in regard to Psalm 119, but all of us who are living in a culture and society that is very anti-God. It's for all of us. Next week, we're going to take another break from Acts and we're going to have a baby dedication and, and preach to the moms and dads. So look forward to that. Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Allow me to explain to you an all too often experience. It's a tale of faith gone defunct. <clears throat> that word means to no longer be alive or in existence. And here's the scene. A kid grows up in our church. He or she manifests uh, the signs of being a real believer, Christian. He goes to Sunday school, VBS. He's involved in lit, pretty much everything. And he goes off to college, and due to the influences around him or her, they end up losing their faith. Or at the least, they lose the lines and contours of a biblically-based faith. Back in the South, we had a place you could get ice cream called Baskin-Robbins. Got one of those around here? Well, you know, Baskin-Robbins, I guess the motto is, whatever you prefer, you can get there, right? That's the way a lot of college students come out after they've left church and go to college. It's, I want my faith my way. Let me define the contours of faith. And usually when that happens and we're defining the contours of our faith, then it's not going to be a biblically-based faith. Now, I know that these dangers are all around us. It's not just from college. It is just that at that level of a secular university, educational system, that young adult, young adult is going to be bombarded with influences that are dangerous to the faith. And influences that are totally foreign to what he or she learned in Sunday school. It starts right off the bat with college orientation. I remember walking into UAB uh, with Timothy and sitting through that college orientation. It was nothing like the orientation I went through going to a two-year school or four-year school or seminary or my doctoral work. Uh, nothing like that kind of atmosphere. It's more than just meeting in a gym. For most of the people in there, admin and faculty, their goal is to be hostile 
toward everything you learned at home and in Sunday school, which are to them very evil places, right? And the goal, of course, is to liberate you from your narrow thinking, things you've picked up in those terrible places like home and Sunday school. The goal is to liberate you from them. The goal is not just to challenge your thoughts, which education should do, but to change your thoughts. This intellectual establishment will seek to undermine a Christian worldview, and they seek to do that with pseudoscience and pseudo-knowledge. False science and false knowledge. You know, it's pretty persuasive though, isn't it? When a PhD guy stands up with all of his haughty nature and says to you, I'm going to deal with the facts today, not your feelings of your religion. In other words, they would say to you, your faith is no more than a crutch for older women and weak-minded people. We're smart, and therefore we put away the stuff of anti-intellectual things. We have PhDs. We have our beliefs. What is a worldview, by the way? They're going to try to change your worldview to their worldview, which is defunct. (laughs) That's the one that's messed up. What is a worldview? Well, it's the way that one sees and interprets the world. We ask questions like, who am I? Where did I come from? How should I conduct my life or act? Does God exist? And if He does exist, how should I respond to Him? It's from that understanding where we derive our decision-making responsibilities. It's how we interpret the world around us, and those things are vitally important. So... It's not only the external influences that that bombard our children when they leave the church and go to a secular university. By the way, everybody's not going to do that. Not everybody's going to go to college. And that's not a bad thing. You're to do exactly what God calls you to do no matter what the world says. The world says you have to go to college. God says you do what honors me. That's what you have to find out. But if, in fact, you are going to the secular university or if you're living in this world, which all of us are, there's not only the external influences uh, dangers of the faith, but how about the, in, the inherent uh, dangers that we have internally? You know, we release that 18-year-old and they move off and they're no longer under your roof and they're doing their own thing. There are two things that, that will derail them fast. Pride, I'm my own self. Uh, I'm going to do it my way. And the inherent rebellion that's in everybody. In other words, I'm going to do what I want to do. Frank Sinatra, right? I did it my way. Those two things can destroy and derail your faith. Right there, the pride that's inherent in all of us and rebellion. In other words, we have seeds of depravity, don't we? Everybody in this room, you have it. And so, in that kind of atmosphere, those seeds of depravity are watered and cultivated uh, much more so than when you're nestled here inside of this church and you're loved by people. When you get out into this world, there's a major difference. Why are these influences so deadly? Well, first, most of the time, Christian young people have not been taught worldview thinking. They just haven't. You haven't thought deeply about God, how you should think and how you should behave. Second, there's a matter of antithesis. That is, there's a collision between two kingdoms going on in this world every single day. It's the Christian worldview versus the unbelieving thought. And this is a collision It's always going on with you. Third, many times the doctrinal training a child has gotten 
in church is just cliche or soundbite theology, which won't last you five minutes in college. And four, the young person gets into the classroom and they're not equipped to analyze and evaluate and to interact with a haughty professor who's around you and who doesn't believe like you did when you were brought up in church and in Sunday school. Now, this brings us to consider the subject of how to prevent college from killing your faith. We may actually say this worldwide because we live in a society that's very anti-God. It's not just the secular university campus. And by the way, there are some, and thank the Lord, uh, teachers who love Jesus that are teaching in secular universities. Amen? But as a general rule, how are we going to prevent this? Uh, Again, uh, we are in fact helped by the Word of God. Aren't you thankful for that? There is, in fact, one awesome biblical example in the prophet Daniel. He didn't go to Jerusalem University. Before his adulthood, he actually went to Babylonian U. That's where he went to school. Which would have been totally equal to, if not more so, than what you're facing today. He went to a school. He, went, he was taught by people. He was in a culture that was totally anti-Yahweh God. Totally anti the God of the Bible. He was not a college student in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, he was deported out of Jerusalem as a 13 or 14 year old and taken to Babylon in a Chaldean culture. You remember the story? They even changed their names. The names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, all the first names were Hebrew names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But all the other names are false god names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All false god names. So they changed even their names, their identity. Everything about these guys, it was changed. They were absolutely immersed into a different culture beginning before their adulthood. People, customs, teachers, worldviews, religious systems. Every bit of that was, was totally contrary uh, to the monotheistic understanding that they learned as little Hebrew boys. Daniel's important for us. You know why? Because many scholars believe that Daniel wrote Psalm 119. And one of the biggest arguments for that is the passage that I brought out for you today. Why? Because David would have never said, I'm smarter than all of my teachers, and I'm not going to pay any attention to them, and I have more wisdom. That would not have happened in Jerusalem. So there's an argument, a good argument, that Daniel wrote Psalm 119. And so we've got the joy of reading, if I'm right on this, you've got the joy of reading how Daniel functioned at Babylonian University. Isn't that good? Of how our students can think and how we can think in this world that we live in. How can we world-proof our faith? How can we understand these things? Uh, my goal is to preach through Daniel after I finish Hebrew, uh, after I finish Acts, and that'll probably be a couple more years, right? Because we're just we're finishing up Acts 14, but I'm looking forward to preaching Daniel. But this morning, let's walk through this passage for our instruction. And the first thing we see from the text, if we're going to survive in this world and keep the faith through college, is first this. Immerse yourself in the Word of God for spiritual survival. In verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. All the day. So here is the psalmist 
Daniel, I think, communicating to us a heartfelt commitment to the Word of God. It was something inside of Daniel that he learned, that he meditated on day and night. And again, if this is in fact Daniel, he was communicating that which the saints of old had always communicated. And that's this, the Word of God is worthy of full meditation, full contemplation all the time. Again, consider Daniel immersed into this culture, totally different than anything he had ever seen. It wasn't like his Sunday school class in Jerusalem. This was totally different. Chaldean culture. Uh, Psalm 119.97 is his understanding in his mind. That particular thought is what's in his mind as he's facing all this Chaldean wisdom, all the teaching of the origins of the universe that a Chaldean may have taught, uh, he would not abandon the Word of God when it came to wisdom and when it comes to morality. He meditated on it. He meditated on it day and night. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may observe to do All that is written therein, then you shall make your way prosperous and have good success. You know that word is only found one time in the entire Hebrew Bible. Success. And it's connected with the Word of God. No real success apart from God's Word. No real success, no prosperity, unless it's prosperity in the Word of God. So this is absolutely critical. If you're going to maintain your faith in a hostile environment. We can take in many ways that word college. In our world today, just watch the media. Just look what comes out of those schools. Many schools across the world. Things that are said, you can take that and translate that into world in most situations. You can translate college into world. So it's not enough to merely believe God's word is truth. It's not enough to be able to click off your favorite ten verses of the word of God. What is actually expressed in Psalm 119.97 is a deep love for the Word. Are you all listening to me, young folks? Not just clicking off your ten verses. We're talking about a deep love for the Word of God. There must be heartfelt commitment to thus saith the Lord. Here's the challenge for every one of you and even our whole church family at large. In the midst of the increasing busyness... There's going to be a temptation to leave off something in your life. And you know what the enemy wants you to leave off? Your devotion to the Word of God. Are y'all listening? You know it's true, don't you? You already struggle with that in high school when you have 15,000 irons in the fire. And the first thing that you jettison is the only thing that can give you success in the eyes of God in this world. And the first thing you do is you push that to the side. No devotional reading. No memorization of Scripture. Folks, don't give in to that temptation. It is the Psalm 119.97 commitment that will keep your roots deep into the streams of living water. You need to hear a verse about that? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of the sinner, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night, And then he shall be like a planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in his season. And whatever he does, it shall prosper. That's not so with the ungodly. 
but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Are you getting this? You have to immerse your life in the Word of God in order to survive in a world of unbelief. Number two, cling to a biblical worldview for mental and spiritual survival. So we're moving from the Word of God that should affect the way you think. And notice how the psalmist says it beginning in verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. We may say that Daniel is providing for us a trilogy of worldview thinking when it comes to his understanding. The trilogy is enemies, teachers, and the aged. So incidentally... Uh, this is one of the explicit passages that helps us think that is a good possibility that Daniel actually wrote this. Why? Because David was steeped in the law. And David would have respected his teachers because they poured into him. But Daniel is placed as a young adult into a culture that did not believe in Yahweh. God did not honor the God of Daniel. So Daniel's teachers, again, would have been steeped in Chaldean culture and morality or immorality. And it appears that Daniel is young. He gives these categories. And notice he has mental superiority over his enemies, his teachers, and the aged. Pretty impressive. Let's look at those for a moment. He says, it makes me, your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Again, if this is Daniel... Then he's referring to the godless Babylonians who were in the process of teaching him, read Daniel 1. They poured into him all the customs and knowledge of the Chaldean culture. They poured it into him. This is what he went through in Babylon. And there's no doubt on college campuses today that there are professors and students who are vocal enemies of God. Uh, the fact of the matter is, folks, if they're an enemy of God, then they're your enemy. But here's what the Word teaches us. We don't kill our enemies. We pray for those who are our enemies, right? We seek to share Jesus with those who are our enemies. We pray for them. So when Daniel views his enemies, note this. He knows that they're leading him to what is totally opposite of what God, the Father, has taught him. And yet, he stays true to the Word of God and says, I am wiser than my enemies. That's a good position to be in. Oh, to God that our students will go off to college and be wiser than their professors. You say, how are you going to be wiser than a Ph.D. professor? Because the foolishness of the preaching in the Word of God is, is wiser than any knowledge of man. Period. So what a joy it is to know when you're sitting in a class that you've got more wisdom than your enemy that's leading that class. It's true for the, to the child of God. It also says, my teachers... Enemies, teachers, your testimonies are my meditation. Again, think about the Babylonian literature and everything that's poured into Daniel at this point. Do you think that they taught that God created the world? <laughs> Forget that. The Chaldeans would not have taught that. Maybe a God that wasn't Daniel's God or what would have taken place, but they definitely would not have presented a biblical cosmology of what's happened in the world. No question about that. It was antithetical to what Daniel had learned. 
But Daniel was able to say, I have more insight than every one of the Babylonian university professors. Why? Because your testimonies are my meditation. Third, he references the aged. These were all the adults that were teaching him. But instead, he observed the Lord's precepts. In Jerusalem, again, the aged would have been respected. And they would have taught the law. But in Babylon, that's not the case. He's clearly asserting the biblical superiority of having a worldview where God is at the center of all of it. He's clearly saying that that's the wisdom that is the wisdom of God. And it gives more wisdom than the enemies who oppose God. And I'll say it again. The student who goes into the classroom with a biblical worldview has more insight than all the PhDs with all their theories. Clearly, a biblical worldview gives more understanding to life than an unbiblical worldview. Gives more insight than the supposed agent in the world who are unbelievers. Daniel not only was committed, check this out. The Word of God is what formed the worldview. You're not going to be able to think with correct contours unless you're in the Word of God. There's no way to see the world the way God sees it if you're not in His Word. It's an impossibility. So here it is. He not only immersed himself with the Word of God, but he was clinging to a worldview for mental and spiritual survival that God had put inside of him. Daniel did not see the world the way the Chaldeans saw it. He saw it from the biblical perspective. And number three, you need to develop a biblical ethic for your moral survival. And let's, let's put these together. The Word of God creates an understanding where you view the world the way God views it. And then it leads you in your life of an ethic of obedience to God. And I would venture to say to you, if you don't have a desire in your heart to obey God, you don't know Him. Period. I know that's tough preaching. But it's impossible to be a child of God and not sense the need to obey Jesus. It is impossible. It is categorically impossible. Now, are you going to maybe go astray? Yes, brother or sister, but you're going to know it. You're going to know it immediately. Why? Because someone lives in you. It's the Holy Spirit of God that's taking up residence in your heart. And as soon as you disobey, it may be an hour, maybe two, but you're going to come to a realization that you've sinned against the Holy Spirit of God because you're going to sense the grieving in your spirit. You know there's a person living in you. He's grieved and he's quenched. And if you're saved, you got the Word of God in you. You see things different out in the world. No matter where you're sitting, college campus or your workplace, you see things different because that's your perspective from God. But folks, that's not enough. It leads you to this biblical ethic of obeying Jesus, listening to His voice. And notice how Daniel says this. I hold my feet back from every evil way in order to keep your word. Y'all see this? The ethic in his life. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words in my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. So here's this principle of biblical ethics. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart, he resolved in his heart, that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's dainties, nor his wine, nor his food. Here's a man 
who purposed in his heart straight up front after he heard what he was supposed to do, Daniel purposed in his heart. What is that, folks? That's the word of God moving into heart, his affections, and him being able to say, I'm not going to do this against my God. And that's what true believers do. Are y'all getting this? Now, look, here's something else you got to think about. My meal is here at the church today. You better laugh, right? I get to eat here at the church today when it's over from, with my senior merit, right? You don't. And so I might preach longer if you don't listen. So you better respond to me, okay? You better say, yes, sir. Got it. Got every bit of it, right? Would it have been very easy for Daniel to say, when you're in Rome, live like a Roman? Would it have been really easy for him to say, I'm not in the southern kingdom anymore. I'm in Babylon. Who's going to know it over there? Mom and dad sure won't know it. Nobody's going to know what I do. There's somebody bigger inside of you than your mom or dad. It's the God of eternity. It's the God who saved your life. And that's your biblical ethic. And Daniel says, I've identified every evil way and I turned my feet away from it. Oh, that's good stuff. There was a principled commitment in obeying the word of God. This did not just automatically spring up in his life the moment he was tempted either. If intellectual arguments have slain their thousands in college campuses and rooms, college rooms, then immorality has slain its tens of thousands on campuses. The way which you survive is you maintain this principal commitment to obey the Word of God. No matter what happens. A young believer must live a life of principle, not expediency. Are y'all listening? The same is true for us as adults. You live a life of principle, not expediency. We don't want what's convenient. We want what's right. You see the biblical ethic working out of Daniel's life. He looked objectively at that which was all contrary to what he had learned as a child. And he made his mind up that he was going to turn away from it. He wanted to obey the word. I love verse 102. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. It's not enough just to hold a biblical ethic or a standard. That will not cause you to survive in college. It's got to become personal to you. How does Daniel recognize the Lord? He says, you taught me, Lord. You are my God. It's your thoughts that are in me. Do y'all notice how personal that is? It's God he belonged to. It's the Lord God who taught him. Daniel has a personal commitment in his ethic to the Lord. I have not disobeyed, listen to this, your word because you yourself have taught me. That's personal. That's not just a standard or an ethic up here somewhere wafted out of the air. This is something that's inside of Daniel. Why? Because he had a personal relationship with the Lord. And Daniel was filled with gratitude to God for his word and grace in his life in such a way that his commitment to God was personal. My obedience is connected to my relationship with you. Can't y'all get this? And maybe you are. Maybe I'm just thinking you're not. But do you notice, I mean, just think about this. This is the way so many of the Israelites obeyed. It was only external, but they didn't know the personal God, Yahweh. Right? There are so many people that frequent churches, and they think that they're, they're obeying a biblical ethic, and everything's going to be okay. It's not okay. The issue is, it's the personal God that we belong to. 
that puts the ethic inside of you. Jesus said it this way, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That becomes personal. Why? Because we belong to him. There was another young person in the word of God who faced incredible temptation and responded the same way. That's why there are two men that are my favorite characters, no question about it in the Old Testament. Daniel and the other one is Genesis 39. Joseph. Praise the Lord. Who said that? Joel? Seminary guy, right? He reads his Bible. So you got Joseph. Have you ever read Genesis 39? I mean, here is a young man who is in Potiphar's home, and Potiphar's wife is making a sexual advance to him, not once, not twice, but day after day. Young guy. Again, I mean, he's down in Egypt. Jacob's way over somewhere. But he's down in Egypt. It would have been very easy to say, what's done in Egypt stays in Egypt. I'm going to do what is natural for me to do. Now, folks, do you realize what a temptation this was for Joseph? This was the wife of an, ex- of an extremely high official. She was no bow wow. Uh, my kids love to watch Home Alone. And I do too every Christmas. We, just, we watch them over and over and over again. Don't you love it? Uh, Kevin is rummaging around in Buzz's room and he finds a picture of his girlfriend. And he goes, woof, Buzz's girlfriend. Right? Because she's very unattractive. Right? That's not true here. I can promise you that is not the case here. This would have been a beautiful woman. And the fact of the matter is, again, day after day, there's this advance. And the Bible says that she pretty much blatantly throws herself on him. But do you remember how Joseph responded? How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was personal. And until we get to that point in our life that when we sin, when we rebel, when we have this inherent pride, it is against God. It is personal. And that's the way Joseph responded. He testified to this level of commitment that went way further than just the standard that you keep. It was personal. I can't do this against God. How, what a wonderful thing for all of us to come away with that. If you're going to survive in the midst of this culture... It is very, very different. And a moral atmosphere that is radically different from what you learned in Sunday school. Then you've got to have this commitment that you're going to personally honor your God who bought you with His blood. Saved your soul. You've got to honor Him. In the final two verses, Daniel, or the writer, expresses more of this personal commitment of ethic. And he does it by talking about higher pleasures. What an awesome truth he's communicating to us. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Notice the connection. What a, what a truth. He's not a stoic. Okay? He gets awesome pleasure in life. And something we need to teach our kids is that God is not a killjoy. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you can't have pleasure. I would venture to say that the pleasure that Daniel had far superseded the Babylonian kids' pleasure. I mean, we actually teach our kids sometimes this about church life. We say things like, if you don't behave, I'm going to make you sit in big church. (laughs) What's that telling the preacher? What's that saying about the family? What's that saying about the Word of God? But here, 
Daniel is wanting us to understand that to follow God doesn't mean that you abandon pleasure. It means that you abandon cheap pleasures that the world offers, which are totally fleeting, illusory pleasures. They're illusion of pleasure, but the fact of the matter is, there's no pleasure in them whatsoever. As Proverbs 14 says, there's a way that seems right for a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. The higher pleasure is found in Jesus. The highest pleasure is found in Him. And again, there are two paths in this world, and they're totally opposed to one another. They're opposite. One is the pleasure of the world that is fleeting and won't last but a few minutes. And then there's the path of obedience, which brings ultimate joy in God forever. I'll choose that one. I'll choose that pleasure. This is where I find, Daniel says, the sweetness of life. I don't find it at the king's table. I don't find it at the king's harem. I find it in Jesus Christ. I find it in the God that I belong to. I'll find full contentment and pleasure in the living and abiding word of God. And since he loved God that way, notice the corollary. He loved God so much that he hated every false way. When you taste and see that the Lord is good... Every other taste that comes into your mouth is repulsive. No amens? When you taste the ultimate pleasure, which is Jesus Christ, all the substitutes, Splenda, Truvia, no, no, all the substitutes are repulsive when you taste the real thing. And that's why there's this corollary in Daniel's life. When I taste God, I have full pleasure and when anything else crosses my lips that's not of God, I'm gonna, it's repulsive to me, and it's a false way, and I'm going to turn from it. That's where we all need to be. That's where we need to be in our lives. You know, the Bible's very realistic and upfront about the characters of the Bible. We read some of the character sketches, and we're like, wow, I thought I was bad. But there's very little, if any, said about David, Daniel and Joseph that's contrary. I mean, these two guys... I mean, Daniel turned out pretty well, didn't he? Listen to the word of the Lord. And the king spoke with them, and among all them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Nazariah. You know why? Because they did it God's way. None were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were not perfect, but boy, they were blameless. And Daniel should stand as a model for all the young people that it's possible to be immersed into a culture that is very anti-God and antithetical and to come out with biblical patterns of thinking, to come out clinging to the Word of God, to come out full of faith and abounding in joy. And then go to your vocation doing the same thing. Whether you're a doctor or a lawyer, you still wear the badge that you belong to Jesus Christ, first and foremost. Now here's a challenge for all of us and we're going to be done. Here's a challenge. Think. You say, well, that's what I'm doing. I'm graduating. And that word graduate means to take a step. So I'm taking another step, and I am a thinker, really. Do you know how revolutionary it is to think? Be a person who thinks. Why? Because we live in a society and a culture and an environment that says that what you should be is how you feel. What you should do is what you feel. Is that not the arbiter on college campuses? Are y'all listening? The arbiter on college campuses is what? For the most part, do what you feel. But I'm encouraging you to be committed to think. Be a biblical view, worldview thinker. We can't just teach our kids cliches. 
We're good at coming up with cliches. We're good at being bumper sticker theologians. And that's about all we learn. If it's not pithy or cliche, we don't know it in Christianity. I'm telling you, that won't get it done, folks. You wonder why only 4% of the millennials are frequenting church today. That will blow your mind. 4% of those of you that are 75 to 90, 90% of those alive in the U.S. frequent church. But of those born before 1994-ish, 94 and after, 4%. You know why? Soundbite theology, cliche teaching, bumper sticker theology that won't last you got to think deep thoughts about a deep, awesome God to survive. you got to be a thinker of the Word. Most of us have not been trained to think God-centered thoughts. We have cute sayings. We have cliche thinking. But that will crumble quickly under the smallest amount of scrutiny. We, learn, we need to learn to engage our minds. A bi- biblical worldview means that you see the big picture in light of the fact that we have an awesome God who is completely sovereign. We see the redemption for mankind. We see three parameters. Creation, fall, redemption. That's how we view the world. God created it. There was a fall in the garden, chapter 3. And the whole rest of the Bible is God's redemptive plan to save mankind. And He's going to get her done. I promise you. We see it in those parameters. There's a plan. There's a purpose all the way from the beginning to the end. History does not become random acts of a lot of crazy people. History is, in fact, the unfolding of God's providence. And the development of His eternal decree that will not change. Mark her down. We're, where, we're exactly where we're supposed to be on God's calendar. He's controlling it all. Now you look like glazed over donuts. Are y'all with me? What is the secular psychologist going to say you are when you get to school? He's going to say, is he going to say that you're made in the image of God and you have an immortal soul? Now we're getting somewhere, right? You know what he's going to say? He's going to say, you're a bag of molecules in a three-piece suit. And here we are at the root of the problem in the United States of America. We think it's just morality. No, morality is a symptom of a bigger spiritual problem. There are spiritual issues that lie under the surface. Check it out. Do you believe that homosexuality is simply a moral problem? Romans chapter 1 teaches us way more than a moral problem. As a matter of fact, because those people suppress the truth, God gives them up and over to a reprobate mind, doing those things with men, with men, and women, with women, which are unseemingly. That falls under God's watch. He knows. When you suppress the truth and you turn the Creator God into a creature, that's exactly what He does. He gives them up and over to a reprobate mind to do the reprehensible thing in the face of the world, which would be homosexuality. You understand that abortion is certainly a moral issue, but it's ultimately a spiritual issue. What in the world would cause a woman to want to kill her offspring? Oh, folks, that's not just a moral issue. That baby's made in the image of God. And when you see life as a bag of molecules in a three-piece suit, you understand they don't have a basis for understanding They have no idea that that baby inside of them was made in the image of God. That has the very life of God in them. Right? What you see today is the symptoms hanging off the tree of a larger spiritual truth at the bottom. 
That's the problem. So these things, have, they're on the surface now. We see them clearly. But it's always been there, folks. There's a spiritual problem. So my final encouragement to the kids and our people is you need to have communion with God. You need a fellowship with God. You need to have prayer with God. You need to memorize the Word of God, hiding in your heart that you won't sin against Him. You can have friends outside of the faith. I realize this. But you should look for your deepest fellowship and communion with comrades in Christ. You want to rub off on your lost friends, but the enemy wants your lost friends to rub off on you. You better be careful. You want to hang out with the holy, and you want to get with the godly. You have to spend time with the saved. Right? You have to know who your real family is. The one we share with the Father. And here's what I would say to you parents. Ultimately, it's the sovereign grace of God that can only world-proof our kids. I mean, son, we pour into them. We try. We do everything we can possibly do. But we've got to leave it up to the sovereign grace of God to change people. Isn't that true? I mean, the verdict's still out on all of our children. Right? But we leave it up to the sovereignty of God. Only He can foolproof our children's faith. But we've got a calling from God to help our kids persevere. And I don't know what it's going to take to help our people and our young people think biblically. But I'm committed to do my part here at this church until my feet are stuck up in the grave. I'll do my part. Think well with dependence on God through His infallible Word. Think well with the Word of God. Father, we... I only can say to you, help us. God, would you help us? Lord, help us to be like Daniel, who came through that kind of world system and is a monument in the Word of God in Hebrews 11. Just like Joseph, a monument of those who went through that kind of civilization. All the allures of Egypt for Joseph... And all the false God teaching that Daniel went through, all the literature, all the king's wine, and everything else the king had to offer that was contrary to what Daniel knew was right. But Daniel purposed in his heart, God help us resolve. Help us to resolve today to be committed to the word of God over all things so that when it's in us, we see the world as you see it. We're not going to let a haughty professor rip our faith out from under us with pseudo-knowledge and pseudo-science because we know the God that created the world. We know the God that, withhold, that holds all things up according to Colossians 1. If you spoke the word today, Lord God, the very atoms of this world would separate and this world will be no more. You hold it together. Lord, we know that. And Father, I'm asking for revival among young people. For the nine seniors that are going off to school and going off into this world, God, would you help them put another flag on the hill for the king? God, would you help them make good decisions? Lord, I think we have 19 seniors next year. God, they need to hear the same thing as they approach their senior year. Father, help us. Help our adults, Lord, to think biblically. And Father, above all, if there's someone under the sound of my voice that's lost, they don't know Jesus. God, would you grant repentance and faith in you and your once and for all sacrifice and atoning for their sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.